Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk about guess what? Journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcasts. I'm Monica Attard. In this edition, we look at three issues which cut to the heart of being a journalist in the modern age. Last week, the ABC lost its appeal to overturn the legal standing of the search warrant used by the Australian Federal Police in the raid last year on its headquarters. We also look at the latest development on Julian Assange and ask if it's time to insist that he be brought back home. And finally, an Australian journalist has been kicked out of China and his crime doing his job. To take us through these issues, we have a uniquely qualified panel. Annika Smithhurst is a multi-Walkley award-winning journalist. She started her career at the Bendigo Weekly and she's now political editor at the Sunday Telegraph and the Herald Sun. She's also a passionate Collingwood supporter apparently, but we're going to not hold that against her. Marcus Strom is a media advisor at Sydney University. He's also president of the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, the MEAA. And if that wasn't enough, he's also a director at the Walkleys. He has a long career in the media, including being the science editor at the Sydney Morning Herald. Joe Hildebrand started his journalistic career as a cadet journalist for the Australian Associated Press. He has also worked as the opinion editor at the Daily Telegraph and a columnist for the Daily Telegraph and the Herald Sun. He's now editor-at-large at news.com.au and he's also part of Studio 10 on the 10 Network. Now, last week came the news that the ABC had failed in its attempt to overturn the validity of the warrant used by the AFP on their raid on the ABC. The raid took place last year on June 6, and it revolved around the work of Dan Oakes and Sam Clark, who wrote a series of stories about the activities of Australian Special Forces soldiers in Afghanistan. With the ABC losing its appeal, we're now seeing more clearly than ever before the lack of protection for journalists and their sources. It's also shown that so-called shield laws are a completely inadequate defence when dealing with stories of national interest, that is, stories that tend to fall under Commonwealth law. At the time of recording this program, the ABC was seeking an injunction against the AFP. So some eight months since the raids and journalism in this country is still, you'd have to say, on pretty shaky ground. So, Marcus, can we start with you, please? What was the MEAA's response to the ABC losing this case? Well, I think if what the AFP did and the way it got its warrants was a lawful act, then the law is wrong. And um, we've been saying for some time in partnership with our colleagues in the Right to Know Coalition that the law has to change so that there is a positive protection for journalists. At the moment, uh, there is a culture and a legal framework whereby journalism is being criminalised in this country and that has to change. Joe, can I come to you because you've taken yep. a slightly different outlook on this matter, writing that the raids are actually a good thing because yep. they are a sign of gross overreach that will ultimately yep. strengthen the standing of press freedom. Uh, yep. Eight months later, do you still feel that way? A thousand percent. Um, I think what we've said in Australia, there is very few. There are very few explicit written protections um, in our laws generally. We're a country as uh, Dennis Denudo from the castle said, we're a country that's basically governed by the vibe. We're governed by convention. Um, executive government scarcely even exists in our constitution. So um, 
you know, the the, 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 the reason why these raids were so shocking is that it would never have um, uh, seemed like a good idea to any previous uh, agency to have done this. The reasons, I think, were pretty obviously spurious, um, and I think that's been shown. Um, again, I also wrote, and I think that's since been shown to be the case, that um, there was no sort of political or ministerial direction given to these raids because, of course, anyone who knows anything about it um, would have knows that to have done so would have been suicide for the politician who ordered them. Why on earth would, for example, a conservative government uh, pick a fight with uh, the the biggest selling uh, newspaper in the country, which is run by News Corp, which is presumed rightly or wrongly to be, uh, you know, leaning to a, sympathetic towards the conservative government? Why on earth would it then pick a fight with the ABC, which is perceived by conservatives? Uh, to be uh, biased against the government? Why would it confirm all these biases, make enemies across the entire spectrum of probably the two largest news organisations in the country? Um, and, and so the fact that that uh, agency heads have gone ahead and done this in such a ham-fisted and, I suppose, narrow-minded in the sense, you know, sort of, you know, the letter of the law rather than spirit of the law kind of way, and I'm not surprised by the court decision, incidentally, because I don't think that there was any doubt that there was technical legal grounds for it, but it was clearly just an idiotic thing to do mm. and does look like massive overreach. And the end result will be there is now a law... Ex- there's now likely to be a law explicitly uh, preventing such sort of carte blanche raids, whereas before there wasn't. So the the, the agency heads, the security agency heads, have in fact uh, cut off their nose to spite their face and probably curtailed their own power. So Annika, what, what, how do you react to what Joe's just said, given that you know you, you also, as we all know, have been at the receiving end of an AFP raid? Look, um, I probably sit between both of those views. It might seem weird that I would think they were a good thing, and I don't. The fact I was raided was awful. It's um, affected my life in ways I didn't sort of anticipate at the time, and I haven't enjoyed one of the eight months since um, I guess that happened. But I do agree with Joe in that we these things were never tested. And even as a working journalist, uh, you know, the idea of press freedom came up and came across my radar and it seems like this notion sort of like human rights or democracy, something I support, but it's very hard to get passionate about something until it's actually denied of you. Mm. Um, and I think in many ways, unfortunately it was me, but in many ways uh, the media um, journalists needed sort of this shock to really campaign um, and for greater protections. I had always assumed uh, wrongly, obviously, that living in Australia, this is not something that would happen here. Um, and, and there's a lot of precedent for this sort of not being the case. I, I spoke to Laurie Oakes about this. Uh, he got a, a great scoop on Fuel Watch um, under Kevin Rudd, and he was given a call by the head of the AFP. They said, "Do you have the document anymore?" He said, "No," and that was the that was the, sort of the end of it. And, and it was sort of seen that the AFP did their job. Um, they asked Oakes what he, if he had it, and this is not the only case. And, and he gave them an answer, and we all moved on. Mm. And I think. That might have been a precedent, but it was almost as if we were waiting for something like this to happen. Yeah, this is, um, that's the overreach that Joe's referring to, of totally. course. Totally. And I, look, would have I preferred it never happened to me? Absolutely, I've hated this. But it doesn't mean, you know, there might not be a good outcome in the end. So News Corp is taking a pretty different approach to the ABC and they've gone straight to the High Court. They're arguing that the raids were a violation of the implied right of free speech. Marcus, how hopeful are you that news might prevail here with that argument? Well, I don't pin our hopes on the courts, really. Um, I think hopefully there'll be legislative uh, change, but unlike Joe, I don't take a sort of a 
university Trotskyite view that you think bad things have to happen before good things happen. <laughs> That's the first time I've ever heard Joe Hildebrand. I'm, I'm shocked. I could almost fall off my stool. Uh, but yeah, this, this idea that bad things have to happen so that people respond with, with good ideas is not, is not something I hold to. Of course, the union's been campaigning for press freedom long before these raids and will continue to. Uh, I, th- I think that the fighting for a positive and non-implied right is is what we need to do. We need to put maximum pressure. And and I think there's a bit of naivety there that the AFP and um, the political masters don't have some sort of cosy relationship and that they're very scared of News Corp and the ABC. I think if you look around the world and in Australia, there is a creeping authoritarianism. Uh, this And this approach is going towards the media, towards journalism, around secrecy. Uh, and journalism is under attack across the world. Uh, and Australia, this is the local manifestation of it. But the, the authoritarian right is being enthused by Trump's election and it feels it can go after free speech, after a free press with impunity. And unfortunately, they're, they're, they're right at the moment and we need to put maximum pressure on them to change that. Is that what it comes down to for you, Joe, the Trotskyite? Or? <laughs> I have to admit, I, th- I think that's a... a- a little bit silly and um, undergraduate itself, that sort of position that it's all the fault of the authoritarian right. Honestly, if you think that Scott Morrison or Peter Dutton ordered a raid on News Corp, then anyone who thinks that and, that and the ministers, well, we well, think they have a cosy relationship. Ironically, one of the byproducts of this uh, might be one of the ideas being canvassed is that the AG uh, would have to be consulted on, on such sensitive uh, raids, in which case you're actually making the process more political and potentially opening a way for political interference where the Attorney General could authorise raids on his enemies and veto raids on his friends. So um, so the better option for and, you is, yeah, is the Yeah, I'm pretty position. sure. Didn't Lionel Murphy do a few raids? Yeah, he did. Yeah. And, um, I don't think he was – was he part of the authoritarian right? No. So, so it, it doesn't make any sense, that sort of, sort of crazy conspiratorial thing. I think when it comes to conspiracy versus cock-up, it's almost always cock-up. And again, um, you don't need to, generally speaking, laws aren't made unless they are in response to something that has happened that people don't want to see happen again in terms of uh, criminal laws or laws preventing such things because by definition it's something bad that you want to stop from happening. So the fact that it has happened, as Annika said, uh, it is incredibly rare, arguably unprecedented in this level of um, you know intimacy, I guess in her case I thought it was awful that they went to a private house and went through her private personal items. Um, that is the very fact that we're talking about it means that it is um, unusual. I do not believe we live in an authoritarian state. Um, and the fact that there's been such a huge reaction against this and a huge backlash against it to the point that the, the cops themselves have uh, said that they basically stuffed it up, I think proves that. Mm. Annika, just back to the, to the News Corp uh, argument, do you think an implied right to free speech is good enough? Is that going to take care of the problem? Well, there were three arguments we were taking, and one of them was the constitutional angle. It, it does seem that they weren't as keen when we did uh, fund the High Court on that angle. It does seem to be just the merits of the warrant itself, which the one good thing about the High Court is you do get a sense of sort of, um, you know, the feeling behind things because the justices do uh, ask questions. And there obviously was some mistakes within the warrant, mm. um, and we don't really know where that'll land. But I think... We do actually need to hear a higher view of this. Um, if my case, if we do win, um, and we're expecting a sort of result soonish, that 
it doesn't really fix the problem. Um, I believe if we do sort of win and, and on the questioning the validity of the warrant, that it will really, it might not necessarily mean it doesn't happen again. It does. There does need to be some legislative change. And one of the things we want is just the you know ability to challenge a warrant before on journalists before they actually go ahead. Mm. It's something that happens in other countries. It happens in the UK. And it would just save everybody a lot of time and money. At the end of the day, you know, um, taxpayers fund these cases. The Solicitor General is uh, representing the Commissioner of Police, who we're challenging against my warrant. And it just would save everybody a lot of time and money if that simple change happens. So, look, our case is different to the um, ABCs, and uh, we're not really sure if we'll win, but we're confident in some of our arguments. But even a win on that front won't necessarily change the outcome for journalists in the future. And one other silly thing that actually has come up is um, the AFP have argued that even if we are to prove that the warrant was not valid, um, that they were considering an argument that perhaps uh, they should still be able to keep text messages or notes they took from my phone. So um, that wouldn't actually help in the long in the long run. So uh, it could be a win on paper, but not a win in practice as well. So um, I think we actually do need, as much as this case is good at getting in the attention and the attention it deserves and getting public support, I think there really does need to be legislative change that goes along with this. Another interesting point, I'm not exactly sure um, uh, of the finer points of the, the whole judgment, but I believe that the High Court's ruling that uh, it, it found that the Constitution had an implied, there was an implied right to freedom of political expression. I'm not sure if it was as broad as free speech. And so um, good on News Corp for, for challenging it in every forum they can and, and, and at least finding out what the lie of the land is. But that would, I suppose run the risk of saying, well, hang on, is this activist journalism? Is is this journalist trying to um, make a political point or express a political position and being silenced? And that is what I think the High Court found that people were free to do. And I know Annika obviously is a very, very straight shooter. The reporting was extremely straight and, and fair and a straight up and down news report of great public importance. But it wasn't necessarily a political expression or a mm. political view. So I'm not, I'm not sure how that would sort of play out, but it may well be that the High Court says something to the effect of, well, I'm sorry, no, this was such an incredibly fair and impartial and balanced article that it doesn't qualify as political expression. It's very hopeful. Marcus? <laughs> so what, con- what concerns me is the ongoing politicisation of this, particularly from the government, where you have the Attorney General saying journalists should not be above the law. Nobody is trying to claim that journalists should be above the law. We are calling for law reform so that the legal framework for reporting on national security issues and other sensitive political issues are within the expectations of the community, i.e. that the government can be held to account. Hmm. And I think that the government is hiding behind this idea that journalists are claiming some right that isn't afforded to all citizens in order to continue its campaign for secrecy and protection from scrutiny. And that is anathema to what journalism is and what journalists are. And I think all three of us definitely agree that there has to be a positive change and an outreach to the public. And my concern is no matter 
how good the campaign has been, I worry about how deeply it has gone well, we're into going to the talk public. Well, we're going to, mm. in fact, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about now. But before we move on to that public campaign, Annika, I just want to ask you, are you mentally prepared for bad news out of this case? I think I've um, considered the worst options the whole way. So um, when this happens to you, it's an interesting thing that everybody sort of around me and journos in the press gallery say, you'll be right and you're not going to jail. And if you do, we'll protest, we'll shut down parliament and it is, you know, the support has been incredible. I think Bono mentioned it at his concert and Amal Clooney's been out there. Yes. But it doesn't actually change much for me. You know, I still wake up every morning assuming there is a chance I could go to jail, assuming the police could come back at any stage. And perhaps I'm a pessimist and this has just proven it, but I think I have always just wanted an outcome and it's been eight months since my house was raided now and every day I wake up with that anxiety. So not that I would welcome a jail sentence for myself, but I think, you know, the the lack of sort of um, movement in this case and just feeling a bit stuck and, and feeling like, mm. you know, this is really impacting my, my life at the moment, I think that's something that I'm finding really frustrating. So am I mentally prepared for all outcomes? I'm sure, you know, if it's a bad outcome, I won't be exactly thrilled on the day. No. But I, it, you can imagine every outcome something that's you gone through my head. Yeah. On, on the day I was raided, the first question I asked my lawyers is, what sort of jail sentence am I looking at? And I remember actually going, I could probably do two years if I had to, but five's going to be a bit much. So, you know, there's things that I've had to actually think about. Unbelievable. Okay, let's move on to uh, the way the public views this because let's be honest, we're not exactly the most popular, you know, community in uh, in Australia. Um, has the campaign, do you think, to strengthen press freedom had any cut through with the public beyond the Twitterverse? Joe. Uh, I think you're absolutely right that journos are ranked, and I think they actually did a Officially poll so. yeah. somewhere around used car salesmen yeah. and um, maybe slightly above politicians. Um, I think we have to be very careful, therefore, when we are um, trying to come across as holier than thou um, and, and, and some kind of protected species. I think certainly if... Um, and if, for example, Annika was sentenced to a jail term, I think you would see a massive, massive um, public outcry. And I think there is absolutely zero chance of that happening. I'm prepared to put my own house on that. I think journos now more than ever in an age, and I know it can be frustrating where everyone gets their own news from wherever they want it and they find the news that they already agree with. And so um, instead of having this great information age united by commonly accepted facts, in fact, the internet has given us the very opposite where everyone has their own set of facts particularly suited to them and they don't uh, accept that anyone else's facts are actually facts at all. I think we have to be very careful um, and honest in uh, talking about uh, ourselves, our own biases, our own um, our own faults, mm-hmm. our own failings, uh, and this applies to everyone. I think right through from you know the ABC to News Corp to nine newspapers to ten to everybody. Um, I certainly try to do that now. I think we have to be now is the time to really pull back the rug. It's time to tell people how the sausage is made, mm-hmm. and then and only then can I think we make a an honest. And, um, you know, if we're calling for transparency in government, we have to be transparent ourselves mm-hmm. and say, listen, this is um, what we need to do. This is why we need do you think to... We've be- do you think we've begun to do that? Do you think we are transparent in any way? Um, to, su- to some extent. I think the, 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 first, the first step is to admit your own biases, which I would have once thought was absolutely 
um, anathema to being a journalist, mm-hmm. and I now think it's act- actually critical. Um, so, you know, I will often say, <laughs> strangely enough, people still don't even um, hear it or notice it or still make all sorts of assumptions. But I will, I will, you know, tell people the politicians I like, who I think are doing a good job, who I support. So, so Marcus, what do you think? I mean, do you think that gen- the general public give a toss about media freedom, or do you think that they're um, they're more likely to think that some curbs on what we do is actually a good thing? I think there's a trust deficit in the general public around what we do as a profession. Uh, And I think that's been built up over years from experience of not trusting a lot of what goes on in the media Mm -hmm. and seeing vested interests, politicisation, false balance, all sorts of um, tricks and um, whatnot that goes on in the media. I mean, just this week, and maybe unfair to pick on one article, but it's been top of my mind, the article, the expose that GetUp spends more than 50% of its uh, uh, budget on on paying its employees was uh, apparently a big news story this week. Uh, on the train this morning on the way in, I just looked through the annual reports of the Red Cross, the Salvos, um, the Black Dog Institute. All of them pay more than 50% of their income on employee salaries. That was a politicised story. And people think, well, why should I trust news organisations if they've got a vested interest that they're always plugging? Uh, So I think we have a responsibility as journalists uh, to really push back against that in our own workplaces where we can along the lines of the Code of Ethics. Mm -hmm. Our Code of Ethics, which is one of the first in the world established in 1944 makes it very clear that journalists should push back against entrenched biases of employers Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's one place where we can start so it's overcoming this trust deficit is a responsibility of journalism. The other aspect I I think in terms of um, the idea that there is a balance between press freedom and national security uh, you, see, you hear this everywhere at the moment. I think this is a false balance. We shouldn't be calling for a society where we are balancing authoritarianism versus freedom. We need a society that is free and transparent. And these two things shouldn't be at loggerheads uh, with each other. But just, can I just say that just because a, a state has a police force or an intelligence agency doesn't make it authoritarian... No, what I'm saying is that to put pit one, the right of one against the right of the other, is to create a false dichotomy. We shouldn't be calling for balances between these two things. We want a free society that is secure. The, why are the two things at loggerheads? Well, because again, any 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 security organisation will need to have certain things that it keeps confidential. Like you can't, you know, if, for the benefit of the of the broader population. If, if, you, if you're suggesting that, it, if you're if you're suggesting that a, a newspaper or whatever should be free to print, you know, to to print a list of publish a list of, say, for example, the the head of ASIO gave a speech last night of every single agent that was working in Australia or abroad. I mean, well, I'm not suggesting that. So, well, so, well, so, well, well, so, so there has to there has to be a balance between national security and the ability of these organisations to do their job and hopefully keep so us Marcus, safe your position is not that, that our security agents agencies should be by law compelled to reveal, open their no, books and reveal that's everything. Not, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if we walk into a narrative that is being set up that one has to be balanced against the other, we're going to lose. We're going to lose because the general public naturally will always choose safety 
over what I can do as a journalist. That is, I mean, that, that's common sense. That's, and that is why it's being set up as so that what's the, argument. So what are you I suggesting understand. the alternative is? I think that is not the narrative that we campaign for press freedom in. Mm-hmm. And we're being, we're being put into a narrative structure that says, oh, we have to balance one off the other. We will lose in that narrative. So, Annika, can I bring you in here? Uh, in your, you work in Canberra. You work in the political scene. The trust deficit there is, is marked, particularly from the perspective of the public. How do you think the public views uh, the media's campaign for freedom? I think it's one of those things that if people, you ask people on the street, do they support press freedom? They'll say yes. Um, do they support democracy? Yes. They'll say these things. But whether they're willing to fight for it is something I, I don't think we're really winning in minds. And when they and when and but when you no, balance like, when you balance that against uh, the other side of the spectrum, saying uh, but there are some things that governments need to keep to themselves that the media has no right to know about. Where do you think the public falls? Yeah, I think the problem is it's a really hard argument to make. Australians, you know, have been able to be kept safe relatively since September 11. Uh, the government constantly used that as a reason, uh, you know, to justify laws. We know there's been about uh, more than 60 sort of security laws or amendments introduced since September 11. And it's a fair argument the government makes. It's it's less, you know, it, it's not very easy to explain the flip side of that, what encroaching security looks like, unless something like what happened to me happens to everybody and that's not going to be the case. Mm. I think the way to explain press freedom to people and I think what we really need to do as an industry is not make it about, you know, our right to tell you whatever you want and, and my my house shouldn't be raided and these sort of making it individual. I think when you explain to people how the press works and there's not a lot of knowledge, I don't think, about civics, and understanding of the media taught. So I think if you're explaining to people the reason why we have a banking royal commission is because people stood up and we were able to tell that story. Or the reason why we know about abuses, elder care abuses, is for the same reason. I think we really have to tell people why it is important and what we do and the results we get because if they just see, you know, screaming and news and opinion every day, they don't see as much value in that. So again, you come, you've come smack bang in between these two guys who I've got here in the studio. So on the one hand, we need to be transparent about what we do as journalists, but also we need to change the narrative so that we're not pitting ourselves up against the need for national security. Okay, so let's move on. Julian Assange last week had a visit from a pair of Australian MPs, an unlikely pair, you'd have to say, Andrew Wilkie <laughs> and George Christensen, um, in support of Julian Assange's return to Australia. Also, over the weekend, we had the revelation that Assange and his lawyers were spied on by the United States when he was in Ecuador's embassy in London. Apparently, hundreds of hours of footage are now in the possession of US intelligence, which is a pretty frightening prospect. Annika, from your position in the press gallery, is Christensen a lone voice or do you think there's been a softening of attitudes towards Assange in government circles? I don't. I actually think there hasn't been um, a strong reaction to Assange until now because uh, for many years he was living in an Ecuadorian embassy and it wasn't really seen as mm. a, a uh, new, an issue that had to be dealt with immediately. Now, of course, this has moved forward, this case, and I think we are seeing a growing momentum. I don't think they, there is necessarily um, an outcrying of support for uh, some of the stuff that has been done, and I see, you know, his free press sort of... Um, Whilst they're, they're both, you know, campaigns for press freedoms, I think there are obvious differences between, you know, WikiLeaks and, and what we do. 
Having said that, I think people do see the response as disproportionate. The idea of somebody getting 50 years in jail for this, I think, is something that um, increasingly in Canberra, people are starting to say, this is not something that we think should happen to an Australian. And I think George Christensen's intervention really is an interesting one. He's considered a conservative. He's considered a hard-right conservative. He's a Queenslander. Mm -hmm. And I think that's not your normal person that would stand up in, in this situation. Andrew Wilkie, less so. This is definitely his patch. So I think the more voices we hear saying, you know, this is outrageous, this is an Australian, I think momentum is actually, if anything, growing in Canberra. I don't know whether that's happening in the public, but I think as this case gets to a narrow point, you will see more of this. And Marcus, what do you think about Christensen's intervention? Was that heartening? I welcome it. I think if uh, people uh, with the moral worldview of uh, Christensen can get on board, I think anyone can get on board, and I I welcome that. I think this is one of those big uh, landmark cases that really isn't a about Julian Assange or even about WikiLeaks, this is about uh, global press freedom and it's about whether the United States has the right to reach across borders and to pick someone up. I mean, I've, I've likened it to a, a legal, uh, a judicial form of extra, uh, special rendition. We can pick this guy up, get him extradited, put him in a jail for an alleged crime that didn't take place on uh, U.S. soil. He, he's he's ne- never been in the U.S. on this matter. He's uh, not a U.S. citizen mm. and yet faces possible treason. There's been talk that... Um, I think treason's off the table, though. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, which is part... I think what I was reading this morning, there's an excellent article in Politico today uh, that talks about if the Assange case is saying if things are being already taken off the table ahead of a judicial process, it shows how politicised uh, it, it already is, and it should just uh, be dropped. Um, and I think increasingly, uh, I've noticed incre- um, increased references to Julian Assange being born in Townsville. Maybe that's why uh, Christensen's got on board. He goes, oh, he's not going to let a Queenslander go to jail. Local boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Local um, so I, I think the narrative building here will be about an Australian facing punitive uh, uh, action by a superpower, and mm. I think that that will grow. And I think most people think it's unfair what he is facing and it shouldn't go ahead. Okay, Joe, given mm. the revelation that the US have spied on Assange and his legal team, oh. what chance of fair trial <laughs> do you say? I think that's probably the least surprising revelation in the history of revelations. <laughs> um, look, I think, um, well, speaking of declaring our biases, I've, I met Julian Assange when he was in the process of um, setting up WikiLeaks. I was suspicious of his motives then. I remain so... I don't think he's a journalist. I think he's an activist. I think that's quite. I think that's quite clear. You don't um, think he's a journalist. He comes to his work with a very clear view that the the US is an evil imperialist war machine. Um, he appears to leak strategically in favour of or against the people he doesn't like. Um, I'm not surprised at all that George Christensen and Andrew Wilkie um, were both on his side because, frankly, he it is a fringe organisation and the fringe elements of the left and the right, I think, we've seen uh, recently have more in common than they do um, th- dividing them. Uh, can I, can as, I, as we've seen by the attitude of uh, someone everyone thought was a hard left Greens voter turned out to be a one nation supporter. It's always interesting to be inside the mind of Joe Hildebrand as he prepares his next it's, sort uh, of column. Well, I've, I've already written that column, but... Um, <laughs> I'm sure you'll the, write the it point, again, the point, being, the, the point being, I think, I think for journalists to align themselves with 
Julian Assange and to make him the hero to their cause is very, very dangerous. The thing he was arrested no, for in Sweden was issue, not a violation of, of state the, secrets. The it was two of, counts of sexual assault, which in the age of Me Too is The issue of him work. being a hero aside, because I don't, I, I don't think that's the issue, in terms of whether he can be defined as a journalist, can we just talk about that yep. a little bit? He, he has gathered information and he has disseminated the information in a, in a, in yep. a, in a journalistic, with, in, in conjunction with journalistic organisations. How think, is he not a journalist? Well, you could argue he's a source. It's just because someone gathers and disseminates he did information, more, but he did more a... than he did more than just provide information. He helped in in compiling the information yeah. for dissemination. Again, that's in other a source. That's, that's a source. You could you could you could argue that. Well, I'm not sure if he actually the the pieces I saw that were actually written but were written by other journalists. I know he went through through it with those other journalists. You would ask you would no journalist I know if they had a story would share it with another journalist. Yeah. Um. So no, he's a, he's a, he's an information source. Mm. He's an information source. I think you should you need to treat extremely. Skeptically, I think um, uh, Philip Dawling was uh, what the Fairfax journalist at the time who um, who worked with him said that mm. um, he is not someone. Um, I think any editor with a, a you know any editor would give carte blanche to or trust to write an objective story himself. Um, he appears to have. Um, you know, he's, he's got an obvious hatred towards Hillary Clinton, which was spoken of. There's an argument that he helped, you know, that he helped Donald Trump get elected. Um, and there are plenty of very there's hard... No evidence. So this is just a thought, Tom. No, so. I said there's an argument. There's an argument. There's an argument. What's well, your argument? No, I said there is an argument that has been made. That I don't know a lot of Trump supporters um, are big fans of Julian Assange for that reason, because they think that he did put him there via the, the leak of the DNC... Emails. Um, is that what he's on trial still, for? But so can I just no, he's on trial. Is it, well, he's he's, he's oh, not on trial. He's, 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 he's not on trial for anything. The reason no. why he's in jail, or the reason why he fled to the Ecuadorian embassy, Marcus, is because he was accused of sexual assault in Sweden. Do you, support, do you support accused sex offenders? Oh, I think that's, <laughs> I mean, that's the, Okay, no, so but that's this is what but, I'm but, saying. Like, if, it's not like he's, it's not like he's been martyred for a noble cause. I'll just interrupt here, Annika. I actually just want to come to you for a moment. Do you consider Julian Assange to be a journalist? Uh, not in the traditional sense, but I think the uh, definition of journalist is changing, and that's because social media and the internet has effectively made citizen journalists. Uh, you know, it's a got a, it's a very different era. So, mm. look, I think uh, the one thing we've failed to do as a media organisation is explain to people what they do. I think people assume newspapers just get little tips and write it without you know checking, and they don't really know how the sausage is made, and that is our problem. But Anybody who's worked in a newsroom knows that information comes in, discussed with editors, it's discussed with colleagues. There's a fight about what goes on the front. News is verified. Also, you know, nobody, no newspaper is going to put information out there that would deliberately, that would put people at risk of dying. You know, these decisions are made every day. What's to go in, what's not, what's ethical, what's not. And we might not have made a good case for this. Uh, and the public might not understand that, but I think there is more to journalism than just acquiring information and handing it over. I think there's an argument to be made that he is a source and a whistleblower, and I believe in source protections and I believe in whistleblower protections, and I think that's something that, you know, there's often been a case saying I'm not the target of my raid and that they're looking for, you know, sources of information and who I speak to. That doesn't fill me with comfort. I think if you're going after whistleblowers, it's akin to going after journalists, Mm. but... The idea that he is just, uh, you know, a journalist in the traditional sense, no, I don't think he is. Marcus, can I ask you then, is the issue of trying to define what he is somewhat of a distraction, really? It's absolutely a distraction at the moment. At the, mo- at the moment, Julian Assange uh, is in jail uh, 
because he's deemed a flight risk from an extradition hearing to face up to 175 years in jail for the publishing of information that embarrassed the largest uh, military apparatus on the planet. That is what we're facing here. He published information uh, that was in the public interest that exposed a war crime uh, and that is why he is facing extradition to the United States. If successful and if the trial is successful, and this is not me speaking, this is the New York Times, this is the Washington Post, this is the Guardian, uh, this is senior editors across the world, not some university debating point, saying that this will set a precedent that the United States can use its Espionage Act to criminalise reporting in the national interest in the United States any time they want. That you, is what is at stake. Do you see that, Joe? Um, I think, obviously, um, the, the response is disproportionate and what he has been through does seem to be disproportionate, even if it is a mess um, largely of his own making. Um, but again, I th- well, I think that... What do you think Apache helicopters s- murdering journalists was something that Julian Assange concocted? He made that, did he? No, I'm, so- I'm saying that... Um, I'm, I'm saying the question of whether or not he's a journalist, I think is very relevant because uh, it raises the question of whether he should be defended or have his position advocated for by the journalist union, for example, or whether he should be treated that way. Um, and again, I don't think that is particularly helpful. I think you might treat him as a whistleblower. Um, but again, I mean, the, his most high-profile whistleblower... Him if he was a whistleblower. His most profile whistleblower, he himself failed to protect and in fact did hard time on his behalf. So the first, the first, you know, I suppose, obligation of a journalist is to make sure that whistleblowers are protected and he failed in that spectacularly. So that's another argument why he's not. And so do you think he US, should be extradited? The US, the US argument is, the US argument, and I'm not sure how spurious it is because I don't have access to all the intelligence, but is that he did in fact um, put... Uh, lives in danger and that many of the people exposed have disappeared from view and okay, so not, not been seen again. So I, it is not just... I think it is a relevant question. Do you think he should be extradited to the United States? Um, I, would, I, would rather, I would rather he didn't. Yeah, but do you think... Um, if they, great, let's are campaign you, are you, but, but, I, but Well, sure. Look, I suppose the question is... I mean, what I think is largely immaterial. The question is how... How, how you think Australia or um, the UK or anyone can influence uh, the outcome or mitigate the outcome so or something happening. So if he's extradited, if he's prosecuted, if he is convicted, does that not frighten you? Uh, it frightens me um, to some extent, but it certainly wouldn't be the first time that the US has extradited and convicted people. And I do not, again, I do not associate myself with Julian Assange. I do not but think we are both in the same But the profession. implications more broadly for journalism, are they not frightening to you? Well, I'm pre- <laughs> WikiLeaks is a pretty unprecedented apparatus. It is not what Julian Assange... But a conviction of WikiLeaks could have wider implications for journalism. Is that something uh, that, that bothers you? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure how true that is. This is what I'm saying. I'm not sure how many journalists... Um, have set up their own online anonymous database of leaked well, intelligence material. Then, well, I mean, I don't know how. I don't know how. Like, I certainly don't like to see anyone prosecuted for whistleblowing. I, but I, I do not I, think he was a responsible whistleblower, and I certainly don't think he was a journalist. Yeah. Okay. And Annika, are you, would you be concerned if there is if he is extradited and convicted? Of course, I'm concerned, but I, I think it's definitely more of a whistleblower case, which, as I say, I struggle to separate from the plight of journalists. Hmm. So. I don't see it as, a, you know, the journalists involved in reporting the information that Julian Sarge provided, from my understanding, aren't facing the mm. sort of, you know, That's implications right. here. 
Having said that, I think, you know, to separate, you can't really separate the plight of a whistleblower or a journalist from, or a whistleblower or a source from the plight of journalists. You know, if any of my sources are, you know, gone after or attacked or raided or questioned, that is an attack on me. Mm. Finally, on Fourth Estate, we're going to look at the three journalists from the Wall Street Journal who were expelled last week from China. Two of those journalists are American citizens, and the third, Philip Wen, is an Australian. Um, now, the reason for the expulsion has nothing to do with their work, but to do with an opinion piece written by Walter Russell Mead on the 3rd of February, call, which was titled, China is the Real Sick Man of Asia. A very weird headline, if you ask me. Uh, so... Marcus, has anyone at the MEAA been in contact with Philip Wen and is he okay? Yeah, I spoke to Philip yesterday, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, yesterday? Yeah, yesterday morning, just before he left uh, China. Um, he's well, um, you know, a little bit nonplussed, being caught up in the middle of something he didn't do. Uh, and I think there's been a bit of chatter at the Wall Street Journal. I've been reading about they're not too happy with the mm. column, definitely not the headline. Uh, but to to I think it's the first expulsion from uh, China of a Western journalist since 1998. I was reading today, uh, and it's it's uh, it's seen by some not really as about the Wall Street Journal, but there's been a tightening in the United States of the journalists coming from China who can report in the United States. So there's a seems to be a diplomatic tit for tat that these journalists may have been caught up in. I mean. Th- the headline was dreadful. Maybe it was just a bad headline. Annika, I'm going to give you the final word on this debate. What do you think should happen here? I'm more offended that journalists are being kicked out of country. Like, if we changed headlines every time the government hated them, <laughs> uh, I think it sets a very dangerous precedent. Look, journalism is imperfect. Newspaper is imperfect. We put them out every day. We, you know, make mistakes. Things happen. But I think what's getting lost in this argument is what has actually happened. And I think any government that thinks it can dictate to journalists what they should be able to write undermines the whole idea of what free press is about. You know, this is about people writing about a country and what is going on there, and they should be entitled to do that without getting into a fight with the government of that country and feeling intimidated by them. And never not apologise for a headline that that country believes and feels is racist. That is such a, you know, small part of this debate that it's something they're obviously picking on. But I dare say they're not happy exactly with the contents of the article either. And that's what it's come down to. And the idea that the country is expelling journalists, that's the thing we should be really angry about here. On that note, we are going to say thank you to you all for being here with us today. I really do appreciate your time. Annika Smithhurst, political editor of the Sunday Telegraph and the Herald Sun, Marcus Strom, president of the MEAA, and Joe Hildebrand, editor-at-large at news.com.au. Thank you all. Thanks, Thanks very much. Thanks. And thank you all for listening to The Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and we thank them for their continuing support. Make sure you're subscribed to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk more about media and politics and a few things in between. Also, can we ask that you tell your friends about Fourth Estate so we can share this unique insight into our media and body politic. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU. Thank you very much to my producer, as always, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Monica Attard, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.